Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Volume. Hoops Tonight is presented by FanDuel. The NBA is back, and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. This is my favorite sports betting app that is out there. It is safe and easy to use, easy to get your money in and out. I love that cash-out feature, so if you're in good shape with one of your bets and you don't want to risk garbage time, you can get your money out quickly. Use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to make every moment more this NBA season. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had an incredible weekend. we got a jam-packed show for you today. We're going to talk about this latest Trey Young drama, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Brooklyn Nets-Boston Celtics game yesterday and some of the stuff with recent Brooklyn Nets basketball, because they've sneaky been one of the best teams in the league up until that butt-kicking at the hands of the Celtics yesterday, which seems to be a little bit of a recurring theme. Uh, We're going to talk some Lakers after Anthony Davis dropped a double nickel yesterday to beat the Washington Wizards. He's been the best player in the world for the last three weeks, and I want to do a deep dive into that. And then last but not least, a big shout-out today to the New Orleans Pelicans after kicking the shit out of the Denver Nuggets yesterday. They are now up to second in the West. Zion Williamson's playing incredible, but they're doing a, a lot of spreading the wealth. It's an equal opportunity offense over there. A lot of good Pelicans talk coming at the tail end of this show. You guys know the drill before we get started. 
Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And then last but not least, if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these shows and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So Trey Young, he's dealing with a little bit of a shoulder injury. Basically, the gist of this drama is Nate McMillan wanted him to show up to shoot around. If he wanted to play in the game that night, Trey decided just to completely no-show the shoot-around and the game. And then Sham Sharania came out and reported that the, the couple of the specific quotes from the report that I think uh, colored the situation pretty well. Quote, the Hawks have held multiple team meetings early in the season <clears throat> to resolve various conflicts, sources with knowledge of the situation said. So clearly this is not the first time this has happened. For Young, whose strained relationship with former Hawks, uh, Hawks coach Lloyd Pierce played a large role in his firing in March 2021, it is the latest sensitive situation that has caused many people within the Hawks organization to question Young's leadership approach. Spicy. Um, and then lastly here, quote, key personnel around the team believe that Young simply must find a way to become a more productive in positive face of the franchise. One last note, this wasn't from his report, but Shams um, uh, tweeted this out this morning from his show. He also said that from what he's hearing, the franchise is completely behind Nate McMillan and that his job is safe. So I don't really have a ton of thoughts here. I'm going to keep this really simple. I am pro player empowerment, uh, player empowerment as it pertains to the CBA, like negotiating with the owners building brands and businesses off the court, player movement, the ability to go wherever you want to go. I'm uh, pro player empowerment with all of that stuff. Why? Because at the end of the day, yes, this is a, you know, kind of an ecosystem where everyone is kind of playing a part. The media plays a part. The fans play a part. The owners play a part. The players play a part, but the players obviously play the biggest part. So they probably should have more player, uh, more power than everyone else. And also, it's kind of just like a product of the way that the league works, right? Because basketball is unique in the sense that your best player can single-handedly change the outcomes of games and your outlook for the whole season. Like, look at Anthony Davis. The dude started playing like the best player in the world, and all of a sudden the Lakers went from one of the worst teams in the league to they're playing as good on both ends of the floor is anybody right now. That's how much power one player has. And so I support that to a certain extent. The players are powerful for good reason. But as the cliche goes, with great power comes great responsibility. And there is a responsibility that comes with being the best basketball player on your team that involves leadership. This is why, in my opinion, Steph Curry is the best leader in the NBA. He probably hates this two timelines thing. You think he enjoys playing basketball with James Wiseman? Do you, do you, don't you think he'd rather they flip some of those guys for a veteran player that gives Steph the best chance to win the title? I'm sure he's not happy about that. I would imagine he doesn't agree with everything Steve Kerr's done over the years. Stuff with the rotation. Stuff with playing style. Asking him to be off the ball. Probably more even than Steph wants to be. He probably he probably has plenty of reasons to vent or to lash out, but he never, ever, ever has. You haven't even heard the slightest inkling of the slightest bit of disgruntled behavior from Steph. He is an extension of the leadership of the franchise because he understands that that's important. The other players on the team will not fall in line unless he falls in line. And so he sets that example and everyone else follows him. For instance, the shoot around thing with Trey Young. Guys, like, don't let the name fool you. Every one of you who's played basketball at any level knows this already. But for those of you who don't, shoot around is not just shoot around. You don't just go to the gym and shoot around. Okay. When uh, every single college that I played at, you, you would do some shooting. Usually, typically, we treat that as a warm up. So like we'd have an hour long shoot around you'd go in and you'd do a bunch of shooting drills for maybe 20 minutes. And you would get a lot of shots up. But then guess what would happen? Then you'd get together and you'd start to rehearse the game plan. Like, shoot-arounds are more dress rehearsal for game plan stuff 
than they are shooting the basketball. You know, whether it's a specific defensive scheme that you have for that specific opponent, whether it's some new offensive sets that you've gone through in practice, but maybe they aren't sharp enough yet and you want to rep them out a few more times. Maybe it's just strictly implementing a new set, especially in the NBA regular season where you don't get much practice time. Those shootarounds are the time they have to implement stuff. They are monumentally important. Asking Trey Young, hey, dude, if you're going to play in the game tonight, during which we are going to have a game plan, you need to be there for the game plan. I don't think that's a ridiculous thing to ask. Now, some teams are more relaxed about it, and that's fine. But clearly, Nate McMillan is not relaxed about it, and that's also fine. Generally speaking, when I hear about guys missing shoot-around, it's usually like flu-like symptoms, where it's like, hey, dude, stay in bed so that maybe you can play tonight. That's not the case with Trey. And I get it. He was doing treatment. But you could have taken an hour out of the day to go sit and learn about the game plan before you go and get your treatment. So, you know, it kind of reminds me of like, uh, you know, Colin Coward used to have this take about divorce where he'd say like, you know, if it happens to you once, no one's going to say a thing. If it happens to you twice, you know, maybe someone might be like, hmm, that's interesting. But if it happens to you three times, maybe people are going to start saying like, ooh, something's, that person might just be difficult. You know what I mean? That was one of Colin's old old takes that always resonated with me. And this particularly seems like one of those situations. You run Lloyd Pierce out of town, maybe people just think, okay, bad fit. Or maybe Lord P- Lloyd Pierce just wasn't the guy. Now you're running Nate McMillan out of town. If that happens, people, uh, you know, it's going to start to look like Trey Young might be the issue here. Now, Trey Young is not my favorite player, but he's a hell of a player. He's once again one of the best pick and roll ball handlers in the league this year. He's generating 1.5. Zero four points per possession when he passes out of pick and roll, which is one of the better numbers in the league. But he's got to grow up. And he's got to accept the responsibility that comes with his power as one of the best players in the league and as the best player on his team. And the team's investing in him. They went out of their way to get you DeJounte Murray. They've drafted really well. You've got wings. You've got athletes all over the place. You've got shooting. You know, Nate McMillan's not going anywhere. And they're not going to trade Trey Young. So the only thing to do is make it work. So, you know, Trey's not the first super talented basketball player to struggle with some, you know, attitude stuff early in his career. You know, even famously LeBron James had some stuff like that when he was younger. But we're getting to that point now, Trey. You've been in the league long enough. You got to figure out. Like, it's for every star in the league, just like with Steph and what he's dealing with with the young players and what he's dealing with with the rotation and some of the responsibilities that he has, no one's in – absolute paradise. Everyone's got good and bad things that they're dealing with. You can't use those bad things as an excuse to rock the boat. That's not what the, that, that, that goes beyond what your responsibilities are as a leader. All right, let's move on to the Celtics and the Nets. So the Nets had been the second best team in the entire NBA after their one and five start, believe it or not. They were 12 and six from October 31st to December, to, to December 2nd, which was the, before this last game. And only the Celtics had a better record. They were 10th in offense, 4th in defense over that span. And KD was playing like a straight-up MVP. Not just on the offensive end, but he's also having one of his best defensive seasons of his career. In this span, he's averaging 29, 7, and 6. 68% true shooting. He's 12th in the league in blocks over that span. And his creation stats for the season are off the charts. He's in the 95th percentile in pick and roll, 223 points on 181 possessions. 80th percentile in ISO, 210 points and 189 possessions. 87th percentile in post-ups, 119 points on 101 possessions, all including passes. He is playing incredibly well-rounded basketball for what had been, over that stretch, the second-best team in the league. They had figured out a lot of stuff, you know, getting Seth Curry back in the mix and what he brought offensively. You'd want Nobby has turned into like a pretty damn interesting 3 and D player and one of the best lower volume three-point shooters that we have in the league this year. Five other nets were averaging double figures over this 12 and 6 span. You'd want Nobby shooting 57% from three, which leads the entire league for players attempting at least three three-pointer to, uh, three-pointers per game. Now, I will say Utah uh, and Ben Simmons were both out for this Boston Celtics game. But this Boston Celtics game was kind of an interesting like benchmark test 
for the Nets to see if some of that legitimate basketball they'd been playing for the previous month was real. And it went just like it usually does when the Nets play the Celtics. The Celtics played stifling physical defense, making everything difficult. Kyrie and KD combined for 10 turnovers. They wore them down to the point where all those longer jump shots stopped falling. A lot of times people pay attention to shot quality and they go like, oh, I just missed my shots today. A lot of times those things are related to defensive pressure. When a team wears you down with physicality, you get a wide open look and you don't quite get the necessary lift and you leave it short. Katie and Kyrie were were two for 10 from three. Kyrie was three for 10 overall and pull up jump shots. And meanwhile, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown got everything they wanted and the Celtics won comfortably. You know, we talked a lot about um, Boston's defensive ceiling last week and how their numbers don't look that great. They're actually 14th in defense this year, even after that defensive performance they put on against Brooklyn. But they have these stretches where they look really good. Maybe it's a quarter here. Maybe it's a crunch time there. They mess around for 30 minutes or so, and then they put together like a four or five minute stretch where they lock in. The other team can't score. If they score 10, 15 points and the game is over. And last night's game was just one giant example of that switch flipping that they've done. Now, they, uh, from a schematic standpoint, they did a ton of switching. And this is the advantage of having Robert Williams out of the lineup. You know, when Robert Williams is in there, and really all their backup bigs as well, they run drop coverage. And I hate drop coverage, as you guys know, uh, for those of you who have been following the show for a while. And I thought it was a big mistake that they ran drop even with Al Horford uh, so much during the finals last year. But in this particular game, they just did a boatload of switching, including the Al Horford actions, which really took Brooklyn and turned them into an isolation team. And KD did an okay job in ISO, and Kyrie did a tough, uh, did a bad job in ISO, and then their offense fell apart. And there were two things in particular that uh, Boston was doing that I thought were really interesting that kind of helped lead to this bad night for the Nets. They were denying the easy passes. So like swing passes along the perimeter and entry passes to like the high post or the low post. They were, you know, if Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum was on Kevin Durant or Grant Williams is on Kevin Durant, they're like Kevin Durant's ceiling and calling for the basketball, right? And what's happening is Jalen Brown and, and, and Jason Tatum are leaning on KD and doing a three-quarter front, extending their right arm as far out into the passing lane as they can, making it so that you have to throw that pass further away from KD. KD has to almost like push off a little bit to go get it. Now he's catching the ball further away from the basket than he wants to. Same thing on – it wasn't even just post-ups. It was like if KD was on the wing and Joe Harris had the ball. And KD's just calling for the ball because there's 12 on the shot clock and he wants to try to make a play. He'd have to like V-cut or fight for post position just to get the basketball. Those little details, that helps wear out the legs. That helps lead to the team feeling generally uncomfortable and their shots missing. That helps lead to turnovers and sloppiness and things like that. And then the other big thing I thought was uh, impactful in this game was mixing up their helps and doubles. So like sometimes on KD, they double on the catch, but not very often. Sometimes they would double as soon as he started dribbling. That was the most frequent one that I'd see. KD would put the ball on the floor to kind of go towards the middle, and then they would collapse on him. And then sometimes it'd be like right as you hit his counter move. So he'd dribble left, hit like a behind-the-back dribble, and start going right, and then someone would sneak from behind to come in and, and disrupt him. They mix that up a lot, and then other times they just wouldn't throw a double. And so by keeping that you know, inconsistent, it made it so that the reads were inconsistent. And as a result, you know, it was more reactionary from KD, and he really struggled with it. And kept KD and Kyrie off balance all night long, which again led to most of those turnovers. KD had eight of those turnovers, which is becoming a problem in this specific matchup. And I don't necessarily think KD has a handle issue. It's more of a, a difficult matchup because Boston attacks the basketball and plays passing lanes well, has their hands up all the time. So from a dribbling standpoint, KD is so damn tall that the ball just has to cover more distance as it's going down to the ground and back, so it's a little bit more susceptible there. And then they're just a really good doubling, stunting, gambling team. And they made KD pay for a lot of sloppy passing in this game as well. I still think Boston has the best half-court defensive ceiling I've ever seen. Goes a lot deeper than that. Their decision-making on offense can throw them into bad transition situations, and they were a bad transition defense in last year's playoffs, which is different than some of the best defenses we've ever seen. But they're when they're in the half court and they're locked in and they're switching everything and they've got the right lineup out there, it's the best half court defense I've ever seen. So Jalen Brown, 34-10 and 10 last night with four blocks. And by the way, if you don't think the Celtics take extra pleasure in beating the Brooklyn Nets, how's this for a stat? 
Jalen Brown didn't have a single blocked shot for 17 games before last night, and he had four blocks last night. <laughs> a little, little extra uh, adrenaline for that matchup. Jalen Brown's last six games, 32 points, eight rebounds, and four assists. 57% from the field, 40% from three, and 89% from the free throw line. That's a 69% true shooting percentage. And he's one of the best pick-and-roll creators in the league this year. He's generated 149 points on 130 possessions, which is in the 89th percentile. He's made a lot of improvements as a passer. Averaging three and a half assists per game this year, which ties his career high. When he's passed out of pick and roll this year, 56 times, he's generated 57 points, which is in the 65th percentile, which is above average. He used to be a well below average passer. So for him to make that type of improvement is big. His ascension has made that Tatum-Brown pairing the best duo in the NBA, in my opinion. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. We break open modern-day conspiracies and tell you which elements may be the real deal. Like, did Bill Gates use COVID vaccines to microchip us all? We all do have tracking devices. Mm -hmm. We carry them around. We spend a lot of money on them. And what's actually on Hunter Biden's laptop? You are talking to the guy that has three of Hunter Biden's laptops and cell phone. And what did the deep state build under Denver airport? Do you think there are secret bunkers? That's just on my list of questions I have about Jesse Ventura. It's our mission to get to the heart of these conspiracy theories and figure out the why, the how, and especially the if. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk some Lakers. So, solid road win in Washington. The Wizards had been 8-4 and four at home before yesterday's game. The Lakers have now won 8 out of 10, should be 9 out of 10. They are 4th in offense, 8th in defense, 4th in net rating. LeBron and Russ are both playing really good basketball. Russ is probably in his best 3-4 game stretch, 3 game stretch. Uh, since he came to the Lakers, LeBron's best two-game stretch of this entire season. The Lakers are good. Like, uh, I, <laughs> let's just get right to it. I, I know it sounds crazy, and if you look at the standings and all the slander that's been thrown their way over the years, it sounds ridiculous to say, but the Lakers are good. All three, all three of their stars will have to maintain this level of play to stay good, and they'll definitely need to make a trade if they want to really compete for a title. But they defend really, really well, especially in the half court. All three of their stars are playing really well, so they're scoring the ball really well, as well as anybody in the NBA. They took that Bucks defense in their home arena, the best defense in the NBA, the best half-court defense in the NBA, and they hung a 133 on them. The catalyst for everything is AD. It's been a weird few years for AD, so I wanted to take some time to talk about like 
how AD has gone from being what he was in 2020 to what he was the last couple of years to what he's become this season. Because I think it's kind of an interesting path and it, and it, and it kind of is a, is a lesson to a lot of young basketball players on just how important it is to keep your foot on the gas as you're rising through the league. So in 2020, almost immediately when he came in, he was an impact defensive player. Really started holding LeBron James accountable. He finished second in defensive player of the year that year, but he should have been first. Kind of similar to the LeBron MVP case. Giannis and the Bucks just had a preposterously easy schedule in the Eastern Conference that year. So all of their metrics were just completely off the charts because like the bottom seven teams in the East were all tanking and the Bucks just beat the living shit out of them every single time they played them, which inflated everything. The Lakers were a better defense. They were the best defense in the Western Conference, which was the by far the better conference. And AD just simply was a better defensive player that year. He should have been defensive player of the year. LeBron should have been MVP that year. It's actually the only MVP that I think LeBron got robbed of. And Anthony Davis damn sure deserved to get that defensive player of the year award. But it was kind of a weird offensive season. To start the year, they were really force-feeding him in the post. He was taking all of these like weird... Jump shots, like difficult jump shots, tough turnaround fadeaways, step backs, and things along those lines. Laker fans were all like, what's going on? AD's like trying to be like KD. He's never been KD. That's so strange. What is, what's up with this? And he wasn't making any of them. From the beginning of the season through New Year's Day, he shot just 35% from mid-range and 29% from three. And then all of a sudden, everything started going in. I remember joking at the time, it almost reminded me of like that pathway to implementing high-level offense. If you have a move you're working on, a step back, for instance, or a fadeaway out of the post. Step one, work on it in the gym by yourself. Step two, work on it in practice. Step three, work on it in games. And all three of those phases come with a stretch where you're missing them. And it kind of seemed like AD was working on how to build out that high-post, low-post jump shot scoring game, and he was just missing them, but then it clicked. And when it clicked, he was making everything. After New Year's Day... He shot 41% from mid-range and 41% from three, and then he destroyed everyone in the bubble. These numbers are insane. 50% from mid-range in the playoffs, 38% from three. He was deadly in ISO and in post-up. He ran 68 ISOs in that playoff run for 75 points, which was in the 93rd percentile, and he ran 130 post-ups for 142 points, which was in the 92nd percentile. So top, top, top tier ISO and post player in that postseason run. And then it was arguably the best defensive playoff run from any player ever, culminating with the utter destruction of the Miami Heat in game six of the finals, when they had no idea what to do with him hanging around the rim. I thought he was clearly in the conversation for the best player in the, uh, best player in the world at that point. I ended up ranking him fourth behind LeBron, Steph, and KD. But then he came into camp in 2021 completely out of shape. And you know what's funny? At the time... No one really thought much of it. The Lakers had a really quick turnaround. If I remember correctly, it was something bizarre, like a month and a half. Like they had like 45 days between, because I think they started just before Christmas, if I remember correctly. And then it was like early October when they won the trophy. So it was like a month and a half. So, you know, Lakers quick turnaround. He had heavy workload in the finals or through that whole playoff run. He was dealing with kind of like an ankle thing at that point uh, during the playoffs. So like it was defensible that he would show up to camp out of shape. But it hurt him in a lot of different ways. He looked heavy. He looked like he had lost a significant chunk of mobility. And he completely lost his jump shot. He shot, he was back down to 35% from the mid-range for the season, down to 26% from three. And he kind of just declined into a defensive anchor that wasn't as good as he was the previous year, who could vertically space and do some of the usual AD stuff, but, you know, he, he wasn't even nearly the same player that he was in 2020. He was also constantly dealing with nagging injuries, including this, like, weird Achilles tendinosis thing, which is a wear and tear injury, not a, you know, uh, it's not a bad luck type of injury. And that can be associated with your conditioning. He ended up playing a couple of really good playoff games against Phoenix in Game 2 and Game 3, and then he broke down, pulled his groin, and the Lakers were eliminated. So his big follow-up season to securing a top a, a, a spot in the top tier of the league was a clunky, banged up, out of shape, injury-plagued season where he lost a huge portion of his offensive skill set and finished the season averaging 22 and 8. 
Not the same player. And so how did he follow that up? How did he follow up that tough campaign? It was widely reported that he showed up in, 2020, uh, in the 2021 training camp out of shape again. And there was no excuse this time. The Lakers had six months off, and he couldn't shoot again. He had one of his worst defensive seasons of his entire career. He was plagued with injuries again. Finished the year averaging 23-10, and 10, 37% from mid-range, 19% from three. Had turned into literally one of the worst jump shooters in the league at volume compared to what he had done in the bubble, which is insane. And the Lakers were terrible. They got outscored with Anthony Davis on the court. The lineups in, in the previous season when LeBron James and Anthony Davis were off the floor performed better than the LeBron and AD together lineups during last season. The AD of old felt like a distant memory. So how did, AD, how did we go from there to what it was to back to what we have now? And I attribute it to three things. First of all, he's returned to that defensive player of the year form. He showed up in shape to training camp this year and completely committed on the defensive end of the floor. He leads the entire league in stocks, which is steals plus blocks. You know, one of the most underrated things about Anthony Davis's defense is what he does with interior passing. We always think of drop coverage as in like funneling to the basket and trying to block layups or contest mid-range pull-ups or defend the roll man, right? But one of Anthony Davis's biggest gift is the disruption of interior passing. Drop-off passes, pocket passes, skip passes, swing passes. Anthony Davis is just getting deflections and blowing up plays constantly that are open for other teams in the league. It's one of the biggest things that separates him from your traditional defensive anchors like a Brook Lopez or, or a, a Rudy Gobert. It's also the same thing that makes Draymond Green so great despite being less of, an, uh, of a physical presence around the rim is what he does disrupting interior passing. This year, Anthony Davis is anchoring the fourth best half-court defense in the entire NBA, despite having one legit wing defender, LeBron, who until recently was giving really inconsistent defensive effort. These legit 6'8", athletic wings with long arms that can move and that have good instincts, those guys are arguably the most important defensive weapon in the NBA these days. And the Lakers have one of them who's 37 years old and on a lot of nights doesn't care to do it. That's what he's been set up with. It's a lot of short guys that are scrappy and compete. In the aggregate, it's a below average defensive set of role players. And he's got them at the fourth best half-court defense in the NBA. He's not flanked by Giannis and Drew Holiday. He's, he's doing it with some pretty average personnel. He got back to what he does best, and I think he's the defensive player of the year at this point. I think that was the first catalyst. And then that, in a lot of ways, drives confidence. When you're messing up other teams with what you're doing on defense, you start to feel good about who you are as a basketball player, which fuels your ability to do things on the offensive end of the floor. The second biggest thing that catalyzed or that got this Anthony Davis trained back on the tracks was the high quality shots that he was able to get in pick and roll as a product of LeBron James and Russell Westbrook. So LeBron was pretty good last year, but AD was never available. Russell Westbrook had an atrocious season last year. This year, both LeBron James and Anthony Davis are available alongside Anthony Davis, and both of them are having much better seasons as pick and roll creators. LeBron had a rough start to the season, but in the last few games, he's been very, very good. And it's so important because, you know, I call this, I refer to this as supplementary offense. So, you know, you have your offensive skill set, what you do as a basketball player. Maybe that's creating shots and pick and roll. Maybe that's isolation. Maybe that's pick and pop. Maybe that's, you know, uh, posting up. Whatever that is, you've got all these different things that are your fundamental basketball abilities. But you can supplement that in a bunch of different ways. Maybe that's getting to the foul line. Maybe that's offensive rebounds. Maybe that's running the floor in transition for layups and threes. For Anthony Davis... The one of his big pieces of supplementary offense is finishing as the role man in pick and roll. He scored 151 points in 108 role man possessions this year, which is in the 86th percentile. And some of it is dunks, right? AD's probably the best vertical spacer in the league. He's probably the best lob catcher and dunker in the entire league. But it's not just that. He's got this like little like pop shot where he just kind of holds it. It's almost like a floater, but like the big man version of a floater where he catches turns and just puts the ball up as high as he can and just kind of flips his wrist a little bit and puts it in. I always got to be careful when I'm trying to demonstrate my shots and I end up knocking the microphone. 
but that that's such a huge thing because like what will end up happening is LeBron and Russell Westbrook will get downhill. And that downhill piece is so important. You've got to engage the screen defender. You've got to get the big man to step up and help in order to drop the ball off to Anthony Davis for one of those shots. But it's not always a dunk. Sometimes they send a little guard or wing out of the weak side corner to help on Anthony Davis there. He's not going to dunk that. But what he can do is he can quick catch it and finish pretty much anywhere within five to seven feet from the basket. And that's what separates him as a role man from your usual um, vertical spaces that we have around the league. That's that supplementary offense that gets you to 37 points per game or whatever it is um, uh, that, that he scores on any given night. And then last but not least, he's making his perimeter shot. In this nine game stretch, in this nine game stretch, Anthony Davis is 50% from mid range, 46% from three. And it's helping in two particular ways. Some of it is just spacing. There was a specific play last night against the Washington Wizards in the fourth, third, third or fourth quarter. I can't remember. I think it was fourth. Um, but Kyle Kuzma and Daniel Gafford were running an ice coverage on LeBron and AD on the left side of the floor. So an ice coverage is a typical um, pick and roll coverage that's used in the NBA and at all levels that involves usually the sides of the floor. You usually don't run it in the middle. You run it on the sides. And the idea is the screen is coming to try to get the ball handler towards the middle. And so the, the on-ball defender will essentially force the offensive player to reject the screen. So he'll get way up high. Say he's on the left side. He's going to get way up on his right shoulder so that LeBron has no choice but to go towards the baseline. Then Daniel Gafford will drop right in front of the block to basically corral that there. And they're basically saying... You're not going to use the screen. You're going to drive into Daniel Gafford. We've got all this help to deal with Anthony Davis in the lane. Good luck. There is one thing that beats an ice coverage consistently, and that's a pick and pop. Because if the ball handler is being funneled towards the baseline by the on-ball defender and the screen defender is waiting at the block, nobody is there to guard Anthony Davis or the screener if he pops. And there was a play in this game, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, they're icing it, they're icing it. And LeBron and, and AD kind of looked at each other for a second, but then AD simply just popped to the three-point line. LeBron took a hard dribble towards the baseline, passed it back to Anthony Davis, and he nailed a three. You sometimes need perimeter shooting to beat specific coverages. And then I mean, look, at the, look at those big threes that – he made against Milwaukee in the fourth quarter. He made two of them, I think. There was one in the right corner, and then I think the other one was on the left wing. But hey, guess what Brooke Lopez is doing? He's sitting at the basket. Sometimes, just to keep him honest, you've got to demonstrate your ability to knock that shot down. But the second big important part of this shot-making piece is the iso-release valve factor. So the best versions of LeBron James teams ever have had a player that LeBron can just throw the ball to and he can go get a basket. Think Dwayne Wade, think Kyrie Irving, think Anthony Davis in the bubble. LeBron controls so much. Now he can share some of those responsibilities with Russ, but he controls so much. There's a fatigue element to it. And so when you have the ability, not just to rescue possessions in late shot clock situations or to attack the occasional mismatch that might pop up, but also just to throw the ball to Anthony Davis and know, hey, I'm going to get a point per possession here because he's just going to create his own shot. In order for him to do that, he has to be able to make the jump shot because a lot of teams have started to put big, strong centers on him knowing that he can't bully them towards the basket. This Chris Apps Porzingis and Brooke Lopez matchups are great examples of that. And AD lit those guys on fire with step backs and turnarounds and pull-up jump shots. And it was that release valve. And that's what's the difference between the Lakers being an average offense and them being the fourth-best offense in the league over the last 10 games. Getting some shot-making in those isolation situations. So with all that coming together, him locking in on the defensive end, getting high-quality shots and pick-and-roll from LeBron and Russ, and him finally getting his perimeter shot going, what do we have as a result? In this 10-game stretch, AD's played nine of them. He's averaging 35-16 and 16 on 72% true shooting, and he's been the best defensive player in the world. Nobody in the world is playing better basketball right now than Anthony Davis in these last two weeks or three weeks. If you combine that guy with a top 10 version of LeBron James, doesn't even have to be what LeBron James was in 2020. If he's just a top 10 player and you get them quality role players 
You can win a championship with that group. Now, Lonnie Walker has turned out to be a solid signing. Austin Reeves from last year has been a solid role player for this team. And Troy Brown Jr. has been a solid role player for this team. Even Russell Westbrook has won me over this season with what he's done in that bench role. I'm a, my only concern with Russ, really, is the occasional bad night that can be you know downright sabotage. But then also crunch time lineups. When you put him out there with LeBron James, it's just kind of a clunky fit. It's almost better when they're staggered. But overall, he's been very good this season. And I'm not even sure they can afford to lose him. Especially with LeBron and some of his injury history. But no matter what, they need one more really good role player. Preferably a wing. Because I think you know with what you're getting from Wenyan Gabriel and Thomas Bryant, and with how well Anthony Davis is playing at the five... I don't think you need another big necessarily. I think it'd be ideal to find a... They could get Kyle Kuzma. Could you imagine? That's the type of player that would just round out this roster perfectly. But they just need one more really good role player. I would say package Kendrick Nunn, Patrick Beverly, and another minimum contract or two with both picks for a wing, and you let the chips fall where they may. Give these guys a chance to win the title. All right. The New Orleans Pelicans... Long time since we talked about them, but they deserve a good shout out here. So they had some early trouble with Denver yesterday, but then they completely dominated them in the second half. The Pelicans are 9-2 in their last 11 games. They're tied with Boston for the best record in the league during that span. They are sixth in offense and second in defense over that span, despite having a lot of guys miss a lot of games. Brandon Ingram's missed four of those 11 games. Zion's missed three of them. CJ's missed four of them. They're just so deep with talent that guys just kind of slot into the roles that they need to, and they just keep winning. I want to talk about Zion for a second. So in the span, he's only averaging 24-7-4, but it's very efficient, 64% true shooting. And again, even though the scoring might seem low, you got to look at the way that this team is actually put together. Because New Orleans as a unit has a ton of ball handling. There are a lot of guys on this team that can make decisions. Like Brandon Ingram, CJ McCollum, and Jose Alvarado are literally or Alvarado, are literally three of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers in the league on a per-possession basis this year. So you've got three outstanding creators, and Zion is the one who's primarily featured. So those responsibilities are getting shared a lot. So I wouldn't look so much at volume with any individual player on this team. Like Brandon Ingram's individual stats don't look amazing, but he's playing great basketball right now. And so it's just it's just one of those things where you gotta look, you got to look beyond that. Um, Zion, CJ, BI, and Jose are all averaging between four and six assists. Nobody on the team in this span is taking more than 15 shots per game. Zion has been one of the best ISO players in the entire league this year. He, Zion has scored 119 points on 96 ISOs, which is in the 94th percentile. <laughs> and a big part of it is passing, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, and then uh, posting up, same type of deal, 130 points on 119 possessions, which is in the 73rd percentile. One of his most impressive offensive traits right now is passing. You know, you got to start from the foundation piece, which is that he gets to the rim as much as anybody in the league not named Giannis. He averages eight restricted area makes uh, per game, which is second in the league to Giannis. So teams are treating him like Giannis. When he's bringing the ball up the floor or when he gets the ball in one of his spots, gets ready to attack, they are packing the paint like crazy. Even like good shooters like Trey Murphy, they're digging four or five feet off of him into the lane to try to contain Zion. That's how much trouble he's causing for teams, uh, causing teams in the paint. You know, specifically what makes Zion a great passer it's part of it's the reads and he makes a lot of high level reads. There was a specific play where um, I want to say it was against it was either against Denver. Or it was against the Spurs. I can't remember. It was last week, but uh, Trey Murphy was on the right wing and uh, Zion wanted to go to work, but he didn't like the spacing there because they were digging off of him. So he had to relocate to the corner. And then uh, Larry Nance ended up sending like a flare screen and Zion just kind of like took a stutter step dribble and elevated and threw a rifle pass to the corner to Trey Murphy and he knocked down a three. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, that's really high level passing that we're seeing from this kid. But it's not just the reads. It's also, you know, there's a cliche in, in basketball on time, on target. It's not even just in basketball. It's in all sports. But, you know, a big part of passing is if there's a read. So say, for instance, the paint is packed and you have a shooter that's clearly open in the weak side corner or on the right wing or whatever it is. When you make the pass, the defense will rotate. 
right? Someone's going to close out on the shooter. The entire defense is going to shift because the ball has crossed the midline. New guys are going to be in different spots and help. Everything kind of shifts, right? There is a contingency in the defense for how to handle that skip pass. So essentially, there is a, a fine line between how much space that person has and what his individual skill set is. You know, certain shooters need more time, you know, because they have a slow gather, and then other shooters have a lightning quick release. You know, some shooters have no drive threat. Other shooters, if you chase them off the line, they'll dunk on your head, you know. So everyone, that that's a delicate balance. But one of the ways that you can buy every single one of your role players a better opportunity to capitalize on that is to get the ball to them quickly, and in a spot where they don't have to waste time gathering the basketball. And Zion just throws these rifle passes. He's so damn strong. And it's not just like, you know, because a lot of players can throw slingshot passes hard because it's like a baseball pass. You can generate a lot of power and torque there. But Zion will like throw, like, like flip of the wrist over his head passes on a dime to somebody, on a rope. Bounce passes, chest passes that got like some, some pace to them that are hitting these shooters in the shooting pocket accurately where they can either quickly rise up or they can make a play. And that kind of opens up so much more for them, not, not just passing out of ISO or passing out of the post. He's also been pretty solid passing out of pick and roll this year. In the last week or so, he's also been much more active defensively. That was the rub on him for a long time. He's averaging 5.5 stocks, steals plus blocks per game in his last four games, which is incredible. A couple other guys I wanted to shout out. Trey Murphy, who was one of my favorite rookies in the league last year, just classic, big, long athlete with like a really nice jump shot. And I love his form. He's got one of my favorite jump shot forms that I've seen in the league this year or in this last few years. There's no wasted movement. His body doesn't have any like weird janky hitch going on. It's compact. It's quick. It's high and soft. He shoots the ball with plenty of arc. And he's also comfortable out to like 30, 35 feet, which I've always said is a huge deal. When you're comfortable to shoot a few feet behind the line or even five, ten feet behind the line, it extends spacing further out. And it, like, generally speaking, the further you're willing to shoot, the less the defender is willing to go out there. Excuse me. You get higher shot quality. So, like, yeah, if you were in a gym by yourself, you'll shoot better at 23 feet than you would at 27 feet. That's a fact. But in a game setting, if all the 23-footers are mildly contested and all the 27-footers are barely contested, you know, it might be a shot that you make at a higher rate. Trey's averaging 15 points per game in this span on 48% from the field, 40% from three, 95% from the line. And in the last few games, he's been demonstrating a lot of really high-level closeout attacking. I'm sure you guys saw that play in the Denver game where he did that, like, double-pump dunk um, attacking a closeout. But he had a similar play against San Antonio, same type of thing. Pump fake, drove towards the middle, elevated off two feet, and just cocked it back with two hands and dunked it. That's that like next level stuff and spotting up that'll get because his spot up his actual spot up numbers are not great this year. He's in like the 65th percentile or something like that. You'll get higher as he gets even better in that closing out, uh, their closeout attacking. But he's been demonstrating a lot of that uh, to a high level during this span. Um, David Griffin has done an outstanding job of loading this team up at the wing position. Brandon Ingram. The unsung hero here. You know, it's it's funny because his numbers don't look as good. He's a player that has a lot of um, – he's a player that has a lot of, like, negative energy surrounding him from, like, the weird debate between Pelicans and Lakers fans about the trade that happened forever ago, which who cares? And then anybody who's ever been a Laker always gets slandered any time they go anywhere else. It took forever for people to realize that Kyle Kuzma was a good basketball player, for instance. I had Brandon Ingram up at like 12th in my player rankings this year because that's how much I value what Brandon Ingram does on both ends of the floor. But he's quietly doing just an outstanding job initiating offense for them in the lower volume in this equal opportunity offense. He's always been an underrated passer. I think he's He's above and beyond what you typically see from wings. Like he's of among the best wing passers that we have in the league. When he passes out of pick and roll this year, the Pelicans have scored 79 points on 69 possessions, which is in the 91st percentile. He's 94th percentile overall in pick and roll creation. Brandon Ingram is a damn good basketball player. And then CJ McCollum and Jose Alvarado have both also been great. The Pelicans are for real. They have a ton of ball handling. All of their ball handlers are above average passers. They have a ton of spot-up shooting. They're seventh in the league in three-point percentage this year. 
They completely dominate the painted area. They're fourth in paint points per 100 possessions. And they're an elite defensive team with a ton of lanky wings that, that pressures the ball and makes you feel uncomfortable all night long. They're up to third in defensive rating for the season. And then they have an awesome bench. This is crazy. Listen to this. Three of the top 15 lineups in the entire league that have played at least 20 minutes are Pelicans bench groups. Larry Nance, Devontae Graham, Zion, uh, <clears throat> Zion Williamson, Najee Marshall, and Jose Alvarado, plus 70 net rating in 21 minutes. CJ McCollum, Larry Nance, Zion Williamson, Trey Murphy, Jose Alvarado, plus 59 in 26 minutes. CJ McCollum, Larry Nance, Devontae Graham, Najee Marshall, Trey Murphy, plus 68 in 20 minutes. Overall this year, when Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Jonas Valanciunas, and Herb Jones are all off the floor, the team is plus 4.3 per 100 possessions in 187 possessions. That's insane. They're deep, and they're good at everything. I trust them more than I trust the Clippers right now. I'd put them right with Phoenix and Denver as the three teams that are the biggest threat to Golden State to get out of the West. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. We will be back tomorrow breaking down tonight's slate of games, and I will see you guys then. The Volume. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.